Man, I was just thinking, I hope every one of you knows uh, what a gift you are to this community. Even in something as simple as like singing, um, there's just something different about it coming like from the room, from everyone, and us singing to one another, um, saying something like, I'm bound for the kingdom, won't you come with me? Like, uh, you, I hope, I hope you get that whoever you are, uh, what a gift you are to this community and what it means to see God somehow wrap himself up in your flesh and blood and work and speak in the room here. So thank you. Uh, We'll do what we've been doing uh, this season. Before we get to the table, we're just turning to the lectionary, which is a way of organizing the scriptures, the Bible, little pieces of the story in a way that communities all around the world share the same pieces of the story at the same time, which is a beautiful sort of feeling of unity. Like today, the text that we're looking at, it comes from one of the four different stories of Jesus in the New Testament, these four literary works that tell that story. And it's just, uh, to me, kind of grounding to know that we're in this with communities of very different stripes from very different places all around the world, a kind of unity that we share with them. So that's what we're doing. So we're in John 12. Again, John's one of those gospel stories of Jesus. And I'm just going to offer a few thoughts about this for us on the way to the table today. Now, uh, John's gospel in chapter 12, a little background. You're going to hear about a festival and the festival happening is Passover, which, by the way, is, is how we date Easter on the calendar. You ever wonder why it moves around so much? It's kind of frustrating, right? It, it all goes back to Passover and lunar calendars and some stuff like that. But Passover is happening here. And Passover for the, for the Israelites, for the Jews, is a very, 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 very important moment for them. It's a, a moment where they look back on their history and they pull the ideas and the experience of a moment in their history like into their present moment. Because in their history, there was a time when their people had no freedom, had no identity. They were enslaved and held captive in Egypt. And then God hears their cry, and he rescues them from the brutality of that experience and takes them into freedom, into wide open spaces. He takes them into a place where they'll have a new identity. So Passover is about identity. It's about liberation. Passover is about their orientation toward God, like like how do they relate to God, and it's about how they understand how God relates to them. Like it reminds them year after year after year that we had this moment in time where it was incredibly clear to us that God is with us and for us, and that even in our suffering, God hasn't abandoned us. So they come back to this meal every year, and it's so important that something like 100,000 extra people would come into Jerusalem uh, every year for this festival from other places. Now, I know that in Notre Dame country, that sounds like, oh, that's no big deal. It happens six times a year in South Bend. But they didn't have airplanes or cars, okay? So it's like a really big deal that 100,000 people would travel from other places to be there. So that's the festival. Let's just get into the text here. Chapter 12, um, verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. That's Passover. And these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. So Philip and Andrew are part of Jesus' entourage at the party, at the festival, and these Greeks come up, and they want to get to Jesus, and they go through these guys. Now, a note about reading the Bible. First of all, um, whatever you think of the Bible, one thing you can assume is it's written pretty intentionally. So whatever, whatever agenda you think drives this text, whatever you think explains the fact that we have it today, I think a fair assumption is that it's written very intentionally. So the details matter along the way. And one of the details you always want to pay attention to is anytime ethnicity is mentioned. 
Anytime a group of people is named by who they are or where they're from, anytime the identity of that group is mentioned, pay very close attention because this is a time and place where ethnic identity relates to religious identity, relates to ethics, relates to who's in and who's out. All of that gets packaged up together. So the Greek thing gets mentioned, and we should pay attention to it and ask ourselves, is this a moment where we're about to learn about the kind of boxes that God gets put in because God's only for certain people from certain places? Is this a moment where something's going to happen with those expectations? Like when you hear something like the Greeks being mentioned, pay attention to that because the Greeks here, most commentators assume these are not Jews. These are Gentiles. These are outsiders to the Israelite faith who show up and they want to get a connection with Jesus. That should be super important. Except the next thing that happens in the text makes it seem like it's not important at all because this little blip happens on the radar and then it's completely ignored. Or is it? Watch what happens here. We're going to come back to this in a minute. But we have these Greeks that say, we want to see Jesus. And then Jesus replied and said, great, let's bring the Greeks into the party. No, that's not what happened at all. Jesus replied with this strange sort of uh, esoteric language. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. My fa- or, uh, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again, the voice says. And the crowd that was there and heard it said that it had thundered, and others said that an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. First of all, I feel for the disciples in this moment, because you're Andrew and you're Philip, and you're like, hey, Jesus, we got some newcomers. And he starts spouting off about the Son of Man being glorified through suffering. And it gets really dark really quickly, right? So uh, I've been sitting with this text for the week and thinking about this moment in Jesus' life, thinking about what's happening around the text. And I just want to explore a couple of ideas with you. Uh, Jesus at this point has been doing like his work, his ministry for a while now. In John's Gospel, it looks like it's about three years if you follow the chronology. He's gotten to a certain stage in life where it's time for him to start working out in the world. He's getting his hands on things in the world. He's teaching people and creating clarity in the picture of God that they had gotten obscured by bad religion or bad experiences. So he's teaching people and he's feeding people who are hungry and he's healing people who are sick or whose bodies aren't working the way that they wish they would. He's, he's doing all this good work in the world, and he seems to be very, very clear that he's got a purpose, that he's got some kind of good gift that he's here to give the world. And however you relate to Jesus, and whatever you think about who Jesus is or isn't, if you read these stories, it's clear these stories are portraying a person who is very, very clear that he is here to do something in the world. He's here to give a gift to the world. It seems to energize him in his teaching and his feeding and his healing. And as he's doing it, the more he's doing it, the more resistance he starts running into. And it seems that the way that he's teaching and the things he's saying about God are offending some people. And it seems that the people he's feeding and the people he's eating with That's crossing lines that you're not supposed to cross, and that's causing a problem for people. And the kinds of healings he's doing and the way he's doing them and where he's doing them and who he's doing them for are causing problems for people. So the work that he's doing is running into some resistance. And in this moment, Jesus makes it clear that he knows that that resistance isn't going to stop until it ends him. 
until they kill him. He sees that resistance coming for him as he does the work that he's here for, as he gives this gift to the world that God has brought the Son into the world to give. And I see that and I think about it and I wonder if I'm in Jesus' shoes and I'm here for the teaching and the healing and the feeding and the including and I see them coming for me. My fear is probably that this gift that I'm here to give the world will get snuffed out. I see the power of that resistance that's coming at me. I see the violence in their energy. And if I'm trying to protect the thing that I'm here to give the world, I might try to watch my steps and be a little more careful so that I can keep doing the good thing that I'm here to do. But Jesus has a different vision about how this is supposed to go. He's, he's like really clear about it. He says, this is where this is headed. And he says that thing, right? He's like, should I try to avoid it? He kind of parrots that prayer, Father, take this from me. But he says, no, that's, th this is actually part of what has to happen in this gift that I'm here to give the world. They're going to come for me, and they're going to take my life. So I, I see that moment, and I think about uh, moments in my own life where I think I'm trying to give something to the world, or I'm trying to do good work. I'm trying to do the thing that I'm here for, and I see a threat coming for me, and I want to protect the thing that I'm doing, and so I run away from that threat, and I wonder what formed Jesus what way of thinking or understanding God, what stories or prayers or poems or meditations, what history formed Jesus to the point where, where he was able to see clearly what was coming for him, but he went into it headlong and brave? Like, what's going on there, right? Well, uh, Jesus, uh, being a good Jewish man in the first century, would have been shaped by the Hebrew scriptures. He would, would have been deeply shaped by them. And when you read Jesus, it's clear that, like, his entire, his soul, his heart, his mind is, are shaped by a way of understanding what it means to be human, what it means to know God that we see in the Hebrew scriptures there. And so for example, he would have been like deeply familiar with a story of a guy named Joseph that comes from the book of Genesis. And I share this just as one example of a pattern that you will see again and again and again in the scriptures. But let me take you to Joseph. This goes way back. So this is Genesis, the first book in the Bible. And Joseph's story is in chapters 37 to 50, the last part of the book of Genesis. So Joseph is part of a big clan, and he's got a bunch of brothers, and he's one of the youngest ones, but he's also the father's favorite one. And the father, apparently not understanding proper family dynamics and birth order rituals, right? Like, he lets everybody know that the youngest son is his favorite. And so not only does he, like, let all the other boys know that they're second class in the family, which does not seem healthy, which reminds us not everything in the Bible is being affirmed, right? Like, and then, like, he actually gives the son this multicolored, bright, important cloak to wear just to, like, rub it in the faces of everyone he sees. I'm the favorite one, right? Well, understandably, this is frustrating for the other brothers in the family, and they just nurse this grudge against Joseph. At the same time, Joseph is having big dreams. Like, quite literally, he's having dreams, and he's telling them about these dreams. And he's telling his brothers things like, I'm going to be in a situation where you're all going to bow down to me, which also didn't go well, surprisingly. So he's telling his brothers, you know, the father loves me the most. I got my, my Dolce & Gabbana. I'm right in front of you. You guys are walking around with Walmart. Like, and, and then he says, uh, I, I'm going to have all you bow down to me later in life because I've had this dream about this thing, right? Well, the brothers uh, nursing the grudge see Joseph coming to them when they're working one day because the father has sent Joseph to feed them. And as he's coming their way, they start conspiring to do something with this runt of a brother that they are so tired of. And they think about killing him, but they think, ah, that's a little harsh. And so instead, they throw him into a pit. They throw him down into a pit. They take his cloak and take it back to the father and say, Joseph is no more. He's down there in the pit, and they're trying to figure out what do we do now that we've got Joseph in a pit. And they see slave traders coming by, 
And so they sell their brother Joseph to the slave traders, and the slave traders drag Joseph down into Egypt. Now down in Egypt, this is the metropolis, this is where things are thriving, and so Joseph as a slave becomes a slave in a very important person's household. This guy's a government official, and he's part of the whole kind of political operation in Egypt. And Joseph ascends because he's a, he's a bright, brave kid with big dreams, right? He's got, he's got some, some mojo in him, and he's recognized for his talent, and he's raised up in that household until uh, the wife of the master of the household gets a, a thing for Joseph and tries to seduce Joseph to lay with her. And Joseph resists, and she's upset about it. And so she spins the story and accuses Joseph of coming after her, and the master of the household throws Joseph into prison. Well, in prison, there's a whole other round of story. It's a great story, by the way. If you're just looking for, like, some good reading, I'm serious. It's really, really fantastic. In prison, Joseph is known for interpreting dreams, and then Pharaoh has a dream that needs interpreted, and then Joseph interprets it, and Pharaoh sees something important in Joseph. And, and the thing about the dream that Joseph had interpreted was that Egypt is headed for a famine. It's a dark time ahead. And Joseph has made the man whose job it is to prepare Egypt for the famine, to enact rules around how they steward their resources to prepare so that when the famine comes, they'll be able to get through it. So Joseph is raised up and made the second most powerful man in the kingdom. And wouldn't you know it, Joseph's family, his brothers and eventually the rest of his family, when the famine strikes and they're out there sort of nomadic and the famine is threatening them too, they realize they've got to come into Egypt, into the safety and shelter of a place that has the resources to care for people. So they come there, and they're accepted in Egypt where they're given the food that they need. And then they find themselves uh, actually in the room with Joseph. And I don't know if Joseph got Botox or if he got plastic surgery, but they don't recognize their brother whom they had thrown into a pit and sold to a slave. And so their brother stands there in front of them, and they don't even realize what's happening. And you, you can just feel the tug of war in Joseph's heart in this moment. I mean, these are literally the people who thought about killing you, threw you in a pit, sold you into slavery, betrayed you in the worst possible way. And Joseph um, chooses to reveal himself to his brothers, and rather than, and I told you so, rather than a, like you can just relish this moment, right? Can you imagine like what he could have done with this moment? But rather than leveraging his power to hurt them, something seems to have been so healed in Joseph that he, he embraces them. And he says to them, uh, what you intended for evil, God has turned out for good. What you intended for evil, God has turned out for good. And, and think about this. Were it not for Joseph being where he was, were it not for this bizarre story happening in Joseph's life, Egypt doesn't know about a famine that's coming. Egypt doesn't prepare. And everybody suffers. But Joseph is there to give this gift. And uh, it takes care of everyone who's touched by this Egyptian empire that needs help during the time of famine. So this is Joseph's story. And there's a couple of interesting observations about it. Genesis 37 to 50, the story of Joseph, is the longest stretch in the Bible where God never speaks. It's the longest expanse in the Bible. You will not find any place else in the Bible where God goes for so many chapters without speaking in any sort of way. And then did you notice there's those three movements? Joseph goes down into the pit, then he goes down into Egypt, then he goes down into prison. And in the Hebrew idiom, in this way that like poetry and prose and history and theology and spirituality all kind of mash up in the way that the Bible tells stories, in the Hebrew idiom, going down is an idiom for death. This is a story about a man who finds himself in a deathly dark night and discovers that the dark night came so that the gift that he is here to give the world could actually expand. 
He looks at his brothers. He said, what you intended for evil, this, this darkness that you threw me into, like this literal darkness that you cast me into, this dark night came so that the gift could expand and that everybody who needs to come into Egypt in the time of this famine could have what they need and be saved. Uh, I'm convinced that Jesus was formed by stories like this and that Jesus had come to believe not just with his brain but in his soul, like all the way through, that he'd come to believe that the dark night comes so the gift could expand and that the violence that was about to come at him, the abandonment that he was about to feel, the suffering that he was about to experience, the darkness, the quiet, the moment when he would cry out and wonder if God himself had even forsaken him on a cross. I'm convinced that something uh, through and through in Jesus knew that the dark night comes so the gift could expand. Uh, in the text, by the way, I did that thing to you again where I, I cheated and I cut out part of the text. You read this and, and it can start to sound like when Jesus says, like, you need to follow me into this, you, need, you too, like, you're, the servant is going to be where I am, you're going to pick up your cross and carry it and follow me, it can start to feel like this strange kind of, like, what, does God need that for God's sake? Like, is this what pious Christians do to look pious, like, just suffer all the time and hang your head? That doesn't sound, sound very good. But that's actually, that, that misses the full picture of what Jesus is saying. Let me, let me read to you part of this again, but I'll include the part that I took out. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Watch this. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. Where I am, my servant will also be. Jesus is about to go to a dark and desolate place. And he says, I'm actually inviting you into that with me. And I think it's because he knows that the dark night comes so that the gift can expand. Because a seed goes into the ground, into a dark, cold place. And it might even seem forgotten. But in that darkness, in that cold, in that abandonment and forgot forgottenness, like a new kind of life is stirring up and it will break through the soil and it will be a gift for many. It will produce fruit. It'll stretch out its branches. It'll create life in the world. It'll generate something in the world. That the, the dark night actually comes so that the gift can expand, so it can like break you open. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the paradox of Christ and cross. And as I was sitting with this text this week, I got frustrated because it's actually a very similar theme. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about um, this moment where Peter says, Jesus, you're the Christ. You're God who has come to be with us and for us. And Jesus turns down the volume on that and he turns up the volume on a description of his suffering. And uh, Peter seems to be in danger of understanding just enough of what's going on to totally miss what's going on. And Jesus says, you need to understand that in fact God is with you and for you and, and here to redeem you. That there are good things ahead, but that they're not found by avoiding the harder things, but they're found by going through the harder things. So uh, we did that a couple weeks ago, and I'm reading this text, and I'm getting frustrated with it because uh, the service programmer in me, the content creator in me, the preacher in me, like, I would like to put something new in front of us every week to keep things fresh, right? And I'll be honest, this doesn't feel very fresh because just a couple of weeks ago we talked about 
how it might be that the liberation that we're waiting for is, is waiting for us in the things that we are running from, how it might be in the harder things that God wants to do the best work to break us open so we can be given away for the world. And we just said that, and I'm like, I'm frustrated by it. But here's what I also am learning, that in the era of TED Talk epiphanies and like highly rated podcasts, we are as, as in danger as we have ever been of thinking that having heard an idea is the same thing as having lived an idea. Right? I know that's my case. I have stacks and stacks and stacks of books at home because I'm a nerd. I love to study. I love to read. In my life, I know the danger is having heard an idea. I forget that I haven't lived an idea. And uh, as much as we want to bring new ideas and fresh conversations to the table, we love that stuff, and it can be really good. Part of what strikes me right now is that God is doing slow work in our community because the dark nights often last longer than we want, and we hear the idea once, and we come to the table once, and we say yes, and we think, good, got that out of the way. And then God is saying, no, no, like, dark nights, like, definitionally last longer than you wish they would because the work is better than you realize it is and because the gift that you are here to give the world is even more important than you know. And so there may be a dark night there. There may be the feeling that your world has gotten smaller or that, like, the creative thing that you wanted to do isn't happening anymore, that you've gotten stifled or stopped up or... Uh, abused or broken down or frustrated in that work. And what I'm coming to believe is that it's possible that that actually means you are being led into a future where that gift that you have to give the world will expand and that in the breaking, in the darkness, that's the work that's happening. This is for, uh, this is for the teachers in the room <laughs> who um, got into the education game with starry-eyed ideals about what it would mean to get their hands on the work, to meet these students, to cultivate the good in them, to challenge them, inform them, and inspire them. And the thing is, like, you started with this big, expansive dream, and right now you feel like your world is about as small as that cinder block walled classroom that you walk into every day. And it's hampered by a system that seems to defeat you, and parents that aren't on the same team as you, and kids that just keep testing you and you wonder how long will it feel like you're not making any progress or gaining any ground and i'm here to tell you i actually believe the dark night comes so the gift can expand and if it's hard it doesn't mean it's bad and if you're tapped out worn out exhausted i think jesus is with you in that i think that's precisely the kind of story that he joins us in this one's for the parents <laughs> who um, have these fresh dreams of a perfect family or a great family or a joyful family, but right now you don't feel those things. You feel like your world has gotten about as small as whatever the places that you call home. And it is just beating you up and tearing you down, and maybe it's even raised up some inner stuff for you. Maybe you're realizing that in the parenting it's more than good tactics or good discipline that, like, you bring yourself to it for better or for worse. And you just feel like it's been so long since you had the sense that parenting is going the way that you want it to and your kids are becoming who you want them to. And I'm here to tell you, echoing Jesus, I think the dark night comes so the gift could expand. And in the hard things, in the moments where you're at the end of yourself, where you're depressed or angry or frustrated or not proud of what you've done and you've come to terms with that, I actually think that in that dark night, the seed is being planted of better things. And there might be new life and new fruit and new gifts that you're here to give the world because of it. This is for the lonely ones. 
the ones who never imagined that they would get to this moment in life and be so alone. Maybe you had a, a perfect story in mind and it never played out. Or maybe it began to play out and then it ended. And you find yourself here uh, insecure and afraid and unsure of why that went down. And you can tell yourself all you want, you're fine. But somewhere inside, you're not sure you are. And so it's tempting to run from it or cover it up or not name it or not confront it. I'm actually convinced that Jesus is saying, you're not alone in that dark place because that's actually where I go to when I move in the world. And that from the dark nights come expansive gifts, like seeds that go into a dark place and they seem forgotten, only so that later new life can break out and it can be a gift to the world around them. This is for the, the people in the corner office. The men and women who from the outside looking in, maybe it's like, man, they, they got it nice, they got it going on. Um, but not everybody understands what it's like for you to be in that place because you got into this work because you care about people because the thing that your work creates or does in the world, in theory, like it felt like a gift, but today it doesn't feel like your work is giving a gift to the world. It just feels like it's bogged down and entrenched in frustration and difficulty. And it feels like people don't give you any credit for what you do because it must be nice to have that 401k, so you're fine. But the work is hard and your spirit is sapped and your heart is broken and you're tired. And I'm here to tell you the dark night comes so the gift could expand. Now, I don't know how long the dark night will take. I don't know how dark it will get. But I believe the dark night comes so the gift can expand. And I'm not saying that God causes these things. I don't believe God is the author of suffering. I don't believe God likes to orchestrate the world so that things are hard. But what I do believe, like Joseph, is that even if you don't hear for God for a very long time, that there is a perspective waiting for us on the other side of a dark night that says something good was being born in us. Something good was prepared that we could give it to the world. And that the things that you've suffered and the hard things that you've walked through, in fact, will become the, like the roots of the fruit in your life that you're going to give to the world. And you'll wake up one day like Joseph and you'll say, what was intended for harm is actually doing good in the world today. And maybe it's not the things that have happened to you. Maybe it's the things that you've done. And it's not that you're like Joseph and your brothers are in the room and you're looking at other people who have put you in this bad position or walked away from you or abandoned you or betrayed you. Maybe the people in the room, that the entities in the room that you look at who have caused you to enter this dark night are actually just decisions you've made in the past. Bad behaviors, bad attachments, one step at a time. And you know, looking back, that you took those steps and made those decisions and got yourself to the broken place. And now you would say, why would God ever redeem this? Because I'm the one who got myself here. And if that's you, I would just say, I just don't think God cares how you got there. And I say that because I see it in Jesus. I see it in the scriptures over and over again, that whether somebody else threw you in the pit or you jumped in, that the dark night comes so that the gift could expand. And if I could tell you the stories, if I had time to tell you of the people I know, the lives that I have watched, who have seen God heal and redeem even those broken places that they led themselves into and who are now giving their lives away, in beautiful and earth-shaking ways. I think you might come to believe me when I tell you the dark night comes so the gift can expand. Oh, you know that Greek thing in the scripture, the, the thing about the Greeks at the beginning that seems to get thrown in there? The Greeks come to the festival and they want to see Jesus and then it seems like the text moves on and forgets about it. Well, here's the thing about that. Uh, John's gospel is being written several decades after the life of Jesus. Now watch this. 
The Jesus movement begins as a Jewish movement, and the people in the movement naturally assume that it will continue to live within that box. And then the problem is that God keeps breaking out of that box and inviting other people into the experience of his generosity in Jesus. He keeps breaking out of that box and inviting other people in. And so by the time that John's gospel is being written, the community of Jesus followers know that any mention of anybody who's not Jewish getting a piece of this, any mention of Greeks or Gentiles or barbarians or whatever, like getting a piece of this, is a little whisper. It's a little, it's a little in the text that says, remember, this thing is about to get much, much bigger. If you think the story is as small as you've been told it is, if you think that God is as small as somebody has made him, if you think that the generosity of God is small enough to say in the boxes that we put it in, it's not. And so John slips this little thing in here about the Greeks coming to want to talk to Jesus, which for his original audience would be a wink. It'd be a whisper. It would say, remember, this is about a story that keeps getting bigger. It's about a God whose generosity cannot be contained. Remember that. And then hear Jesus talk about taking us to the dark and difficult places so the gift can expand. The dark night comes so the gift can expand. And we want to keep pressing into that as a community and keep coming to the table and asking Jesus to nourish us through the dark night. Walk with us through the hard things. So the kind of joy that would emanate from our lives isn't some paper-thin superficial happiness that we've used to cover up the reality of what we are experiencing, but in fact, something deep and transformative can happen. Something so enduring and powerful that we might see violence coming against us and we would know that it's nothing compared to the enduring gift that we have to give the world. Because God has, in fact, taken a dark night and turned it for our good. So, um, today as we come to the table, I've also been mindful of the way that the scripture talks about the table, and this pattern's there again and again. This is one of those things that if you read the scriptures looking for it, you'll find it everywhere. Uh, in the language around the table, it looks a little different, but it's the exact same uh, pattern or spirituality present here. Um, over and over in the Gospels, you'll see Jesus eating a meal with his friends, and there's a, a pattern that always occurs. Look, look for this in the Gospels sometimes, you'll see it. Here's an example of it in Matthew 26. While they were eating, Jesus, watched this, he took bread, and when he had given thanks or blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it away to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. And if you look closely, you will see again and again and again and again the pattern of something being taken and blessed, broken and given. And I'm quite convinced that you don't get to skip any part of that if your life is a gift for the world. So Joseph is called out from among his brothers by a father who names him, who calls him out, who puts a garment on him that, that calls him out from those brothers, right? Taken from the brothers, blessed by the father, known as the one that is loved by the father, and then broken again and again, thrown into the pit, dragged down to Egypt, thrown into the jail, broken again and again, but his life given away, not in a way that uses him up, but in a way that restores him. And gives him the love and the courage to say to his brothers, God meant this for good. And taken, blessed, broken, and given again and again. And as we come to the table, I'll do the same thing with this loaf to remind us that perhaps that's what God wants to do with us. So that your life could be a good and enduring gift for the world. So uh, I'll pray for these elements. And uh, I'll go ahead and ask those who are going to serve you to come forward so I can serve them.
And then uh, for today's uh, communion, for this Eucharist remembrance, we just wanted to create a little more breathing room. And so uh, once I've served those who are going to serve you, um, you're welcome to get up out of your seat and go to one of the corners and hold out your hand and, and receive. Uh, but we also, uh, we got enough time left that we've put a few uh, slides on the screen to revisit some of these scriptures and hear some of these questions a little more deeply. If you're a person for whom the word prayer works, awesome. This is a great time to pray and to believe that the Spirit is uh, sort of working with you to turn your attention to what this word might mean for you today. Uh, if you're not a person for whom words like prayer, spirit, God, work, that's, that's okay too. Like I think this could still be a, a really meaningful time for you to sit with some of these questions and ask if there's any part of this that resonates with you or any experience of this that you've had in your life that you might want to press into right now. And then, like I said, you're welcome whenever you want to get up out of your seat and go to the corner. But let me invite those who are going to serve you to come forward and meet me here on the stage. And while they do, I'll pray. Um, God, may this be for us the body and blood of Jesus. May this be for us a reminder that you're with us in the dark nights and that you are transforming us into a better gift and that you're with us in all things and that you are good in all things. Make us brave and uh, give us away. We pray through Jesus. Amen. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was with those friends and he took a loaf of bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he gave it away. And he took a cup and he said, this is the cup of a new covenant. It's the cup of a, of a promise that God is with you in the dark night and that he might be doing something good. That the gift might expand and that we could join Jesus in that kind of resurrection experience that helps other people come alive. So it's the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. It's the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. It's the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. It's the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. It's the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. All right, so you've got a, a few moments here. If you'd like to sit and reflect for a bit, you can. If you'd like to let the things on screen help you do that, you can. If you'd like to get out of your seat and go to a corner and receive, uh, you're welcome to. And then uh, a little while later, Dan will lead us into a closing song. I remember being um, a bit younger than I am right now and feeling this deep conviction that like, what Jesus was doing was full and alive and deeply connected to what it means to be human. And then feeling like I hadn't gotten that out of my like Christian experience very much. And later I've learned that some people will call some of these themes that we've been talking about, like dark nights, they call it the minor chords of a Christian spirituality. And I think I discovered that like I had been just getting a part of it in my experience of church or faith or whatever and I'm grateful that the calendar and 
this time of the year where we think about these harder but incredibly central things that Jesus was saying and doing the way they speak to us today. And I'm grateful for a community like this where I keep seeing and hearing stories of people actually going into the harder things. And it's building my own conviction about this because it's not just a theory, it's actually being lived out. And I can look around this room right now and point to faces and know stories where people are pressing into these harder things or living in darker nights sometimes and discovering that in fact something good is coming out of them and being given to the world. And so uh, I don't say these things lightly or cheaply, but I'm grateful for this moment in our community. Uh, And then I'm grateful for Easter, which is right around the corner. And coming out of Easter, we're going to talk about creativity. We're going to talk about what it means to bear the image in, in creating things and in family life and in work. We're going to talk about the spirituality of spreadsheets. I'm serious. And 10 of you are excited. But it's, it's important to talk about the work that we do. It's good and it matters. We're going to talk about the incredible possibilities of being human that are being displayed in Jesus. We're going we're to press into that after Easter But we have just a few more moments in this journey uh, as we move toward Good Friday and Lent. And it's good to be at the table together, too, and to hear some of these minor chords. A reminder uh, that we're just a couple of weeks away from Good Friday and the new service times, and that um, you'll want to keep an eye on your calendar and figure out how you're going to be part of all of that. And uh, I should probably say this. If you're not on the newsletter, go to the website and hit that up. Give us your address just because it's the best way to stay in the loop, and we'll keep you posted of things as they move around our community here. Uh, But today we'll end with our benediction that marks our community every week and offer these words to one another. Grace and peace be with you. you. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.